Good morning, everybody. Happy Wednesday. Glad to see you all this morning. This is the penultimate lesson of this school year. Oh, we only have one more after this week, so I'm glad that you all have hung in with us. A reminder that we have a good email list. Um, we just had a couple people add themselves to the email list this week, so a reminder that if you'd like to be on our list so you know about the upcoming lessons, in particular when we begin next year, we typically begin the week after Labor Day in September, but we are setting up the schedule and we want to make sure you are included. And so if you are not on our email list, Bub is in the back of the room, for those of you who are in person. Hi, Bub. There you are. And if you are online, then if you visit stmichael.org slash RBS, that's Rector's Bible Study, then you can send me or Bub an email, and we will make sure you are added to that list. So let's see. We are almost done. This is our last week on Numbers. We do one quick week on Deuteronomy next week, and then we are done with Moses. Next year, we will be going into the kingdom period. We'll be discussing the king, so we're going to deal with Saul and with Solomon, but focus primarily on David, and that's going to be all of next school year, so that two years from now, we can get to Jesus in the Gospel of John. And so I'm looking forward to it. I'm already starting to think through what we're going to be doing with the kingdom periods next year. It will be good fun. So reminder that we do have a podcast. If you want to listen to our old episodes, you can see a video blog as well. So if you prefer to watch or to listen, we have both of those things available. And today we're going to be looking at Numbers chapters 22 through 24. Remember, I like questions. So if you've got them, ask them. And especially online as well, feel free to type those in to the comment field and Bob will ask them for you live. Let's say a prayer and we'll get rolling. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for this season of Easter that helps lift us up and inspire us. May each one of us here empty ourselves of the things that worry and stress us that we can make space for your spirit to fill us up and that we can be inspired and transformed to go out into the world to be your hands and feet of love to all we meet. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we are talking about Balak and Balaam. This is a great story. I don't know if you remember this from your own like childhood because Balaam's donkey is a great story and I tell it to children. I guess it could be a problem for some people to tell it to children, but whatever. Um, it's, it's the story. It's the, sto- I like to say this is the story of three asses. Um, so it's Balak, Balaam and his donkey. So we're going to be looking at all of that. We have four sections today. Balak summons Balaam, Balaam's donkey. That's the fun part. And then we've got Balaam's first and second oracles, and then his third and fourth oracles. And so we're going to kick it off by being clear about who these people are. So to set this up, the Israelites wandered from Sinai up to the promised land. They sent their spies into the promised land. The spies came back and they said, oh my gosh, everyone's so big. We can't go in there. We're going to be defeated. They will slaughter us, all except for Caleb. And Caleb said, actually, God's with us. We can do this if God is with us. But democratically, he lost. And so as the people began to get afraid of going into the promised land, God said, listen, if you're not going to be faithful to me and everything that I have done for you, then get back out into the wilderness. All of the adults of this generation who did not trust me need to die naturally out in the wilderness. 
until they go back to the edge of the promised land and ultimately go in. And it's that point when Joshua, who again, he kind of joins Caleb um, in his faithfulness. So Caleb and Joshua are the ones that get to remain alive and go into the promised land from that adult generation. Joshua then ultimately leads the people into the promised land, and that's where we get the battle of Jericho. So if at the end of this study, and I'll talk just for a moment about it next week, if you want to know that part of this story, then you just press on to the sixth book of the Bible. You can go into Joshua, read all about the battles. It's quite easy to read. Um, It reads like, I don't know, a war movie with lots of people who die. And so you can press on and read all of that, but we're not going to actually do that properly in this Bible study. But essentially where we are now is we have fast forwarded through most of the wilderness period. We are getting to the point where the Israelites will be back at the door of the promised land and will ultimately cross over under Joshua's leadership. The Israelites have, as they have wandered around, gotten stronger. So when they first started, they were not really keen on fighting. That could be many reasons why, but it makes sense in a natural progression that the Israelites just simply weren't ready for that yet. But as they wander around the wilderness, they get stronger and they get more coordinated. They've got better leadership and they begin to fight with the different other clans and tribes around them. We discussed last week the different groups that were already in the promised land and the way in which they are kind of sort of related to the Israelites in some way. So a reminder, these maps were handed out last week. If you did not receive one, then it was emailed as well. And if you were not on our email list last week, then you can grab one from above. But these maps show you how the Israelites wandered all over the place. Why this is important today is because we're going to be talking about the Moabites. And so if you look on your map, you can see that just southeast of the Dead Sea, perhaps directly east of the Dead Sea, either way, depends on how you look at it, is the land of Moab. The Moabites are there, and the Moabites root themselves all the way back to Lot. Now, who was Lot? Lot was a relative of Abraham's. And do you remember that when God was talking with Abraham way back in Genesis, was looking to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? And Abraham said, if you find a few righteous people, will you not destroy it? Yes, that sounds good. But ultimately it was destroyed anyway. And Lot escapes, but then his wife turns back around and looks and is turned into a pillar of salt. Remember that story? So Lot ultimately escapes. Lot had two daughters and those two daughters for different reasons, we'll, we don't have to talk all about this, ended up seducing their father in order to have sex with him and get pregnant by him. And so, oh, I love the faces in here. Like, we don't remember that story, do we? <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, the Bible, man. It's, it's the best reality TV show you've ever seen. Um, so Lot gets his daughters pregnant, and one of them is Moab. And so the Moabites are essentially the people's that root themselves back to this incestuous relationship with Lot and his daughters. So they are distant cousins of the Israelites, but they're part of that long category of cousins who somehow have a problem in their history. 
The Israelites are kind of the pure group. Of course, who's telling the story, right? The Israelites are telling the story. So, you know, that's how it works. Um, But the Israelites root themselves back to Abraham through Isaac and then Jacob. And then they go on and on and on through Jacob's line. All of these other groups that you see on the map, the people that the Israelites have been fighting, are also somehow related to them, whether it's through Noah or through Abraham or whomever. They do root themselves back in some way. Today we're talking about the Moabites. Balak is the king of the Moabites. And so now we understand the way that they are essentially related back to the Israelites, but long, long time ago. Any questions about the relationship between the Moabites and the Israelites? Who Moab was or all that good stuff? Yes. Absolutely, they look down on them. Um, so, we all, we're all part of families in some way, whether it's biological or chosen. And we know that when people make choices we disagree with, that they essentially start to separate themselves from one another. I know it's probably never happened in here, but if you think about like that sibling or that cousin or that whatever who sort of went off the rails from the rest of the family, you can think of the Moabites like that. The Edomites were like that. The Amalekites were like that. They all connect at some different point in the past, but we've got, you know, Lot having children with his daughters. It's not exactly what we do, right? And so those descendants just sort of started wrongly. And so all the Moabites are a little off. We talked last week about the Edomites. They are the descendants of Esau. And so you've got Esau, remember Jacob and Esau, twins. Esau essentially marries the wrong woman, women really. Um, Jacob goes and he does the proper thing. Remember, Jacob goes way back to the old country and finds him the right kind of wives. Esau does not. So Esau's descendants then become essentially problematic because he didn't marry the right person. And so on and on and on. Everybody's got some story like that where, I mean, Lot and his daughters is a different kind of problem. Um, others, it's really just sort of what we might consider um, cross-cultural marriages that at the time were perceived of as being very problematic. I mean, y'all, let's be honest. Nowadays, not everybody's okay with that. And so we understand how they might have done that. Much of this, though, has to do with the Israelite identity. There is a, I'll say a pride. There's a pride in being pure because being pure means that you are best related to God. And remember, put this in the context, who's writing this, right? The people literally in the wilderness are not writing these stories. These are the people who have gone off and they were taken into exile in Babylon. And now they're writing the story of their history. And for them, it's very important that they stay pure in order to not do the wrong thing again. So the starting place is good. They mean well when they tell these stories because their desire is to really remain connected to God in the best way. But in doing that, 
What they do is exclude everyone else who is somehow impure from their line. That ultimately is Jesus's issue. So for us as Christians, when Jesus comes on the scene, he doesn't criticize the Jewish leadership, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, just because they're doing what they're doing, um, because he knows they're trying their best. Much of his criticism comes with who is excluded from the good group. And so he begins to include them again, tax collectors and the sick and, you know, you name it. He, everybody's in. And the great story that I always like to point to in this issue is the woman at the well. There is probably not any better story that succinctly delivers the message of Jesus more so than the woman at the well. But who was that woman? A Samaritan. Now, who are the Samaritans? They're the group of Jews that descended from the Jews that didn't go into exile. And so this is very important. Samaritans are not non-Jews. They're the wrong Jews. And they're the wrong Jews because when Babylon took Israel up into exile, they didn't take everybody. They only took sort of the leaders, the political leaders and the religious leaders and the lawyers and that sort of stuff. So they took all of them, left most of the rest of the people there. These were the people who were just working. They were making stuff and growing stuff and they didn't know theology. They didn't, they were probably illiterate mostly. So they had their traditions. They kept those traditions. Well, during the exile, all of these really heady Jews decided that they needed to do things in a particular way in order to stay well related to God. So by the time they came back 70 plus years later and reestablished the temple, they thought they knew better than the Jews that had stayed. And so they began to separate themselves very clearly from the wrong Jews so they could be the right Jews. Well, the wrong Jews were the Samaritans, which is part of why it was so clear that when you tell the story of the Good Samaritan, this person just didn't randomly do the right thing. No, they did the right thing because they knew how to do the right thing. They were still Jews. They still understood hospitality and care for a neighbor. And we've looked at this, remember when we were in um, Leviticus, we hear that God said, love God and love one another. So Jesus's message, his great commandment is not new to him. He's just reiterating the simplicity of what God had said from the very beginning. Samaritans knew this. And so when they saw a person in need, they of course helped them. That's what you do. But not just because they were humane. It's because they were Jewish too. They were just considered the wrong kind of Jew. And that's when Jesus really starts to piss everybody off is because they've tried their best to differentiate themselves from the others. And now Jesus is saying, actually, they kind of get it. And you all are the ones who have gotten it wrong. Ooh, that does not go over well. Does that all make sense? So it's kind of like, I know a lot of Episcopalians who would much rather sit down and have coffee with someone who's Jewish than someone who's Baptist. I mean, God forbid, <laughs> right? I mean, that's it, right? Like, what in the world? Not that anyone's bad. I mean, like, have coffee with everybody. But it is funny that Episcopalians seem to think that the Christians who are really close but doing something very different are somehow most wrong versus 
all the people who aren't Christian. I mean, it's kind of, it's ironic, right? That's essentially what's happening here. It's when your sibling does the wrong that you're so similar, but they made that one choice. And then, so now they're totally off versus all the strangers that you have no idea about. So that's essentially what's happening here. The Moabites are kind of those people. They share common ancestry, but the Israelites have been chosen, not the Moabites. We often conflate Israelite with Jewish. That's not the case. Remember, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And so all Israelite means is descendants of Jacob. We, sh- we should not make Israelite synonymous with Jewish because that's not really what the technical words mean. Okay, other questions or thoughts? All right, so we kind of get Balak king of the Moabites, Balaam. Balaam is a random guy, not Israelite. We are not entirely, I mean, he's sort of unclear. He's from around there. And he has somehow been identified as a person who can effectively curse people. And what that really means is he's a prophet, a seer, an oracle, whatever word you want to use. He is one of those people that has gained the reputation of if he curses, then that person goes down. And so as he begins to develop this, um, a reputation for effective cursing, Balak is also seeing the Israelites traipsing around near the Moabite region and begins to get afraid of them. They're getting stronger. And he knows as the Israelites come back into Moab, the Moabites are going to have a very hard time resisting the Israelites. And so he calls Balaam, the local oracle, in order to curse the Israelites so that the Moabites are able to defend their land. Does that all make sense? Okay. Let's start then with chapter 22. And I will read more than normal today because This is one of those sections of the Bible where the story's just too good not to read it. It's good stuff. Okay, chapter 22. The Israelites set out and camped in the plains of Moab across the Jordan from Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was in great dread of the people because they were so numerous. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us, as an ox licks up the grass of the fields. Now Balak, son of Zippor, was king of Moab at the time. He sent messengers to Balaam, son of Beor at Pethor, which is in the Euphrates, in the land of Ammon, whatever, I don't know how to pronounce all these things, Ammon, to summon him, saying, A people has come out of Egypt. They have spread over the face of the earth, and they have settled next to me. Come now. Curse this people for me, since they are stranger than I. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that whomever you bless is blessed, and whomever you curse is cursed. And so we'll pause there. So as I noted, Israel's making its way around. What is interesting about this whole section that we're going to discuss today, these three chapters, Israel's not really involved So we see right at the very beginning of chapter 2, the Israelites set out and they camped in the plains of Moab across the Jordan from Jericho. They are now back east of the Dead Sea, 
about to approach Jericho from the east. So if you look at that map, they are coming up through what is now Jordan, and they are on the east side of the Dead Sea, and they're teeing up to cross the Jordan River from the east into Jericho, which is west of the Jordan River. Does that all make sense? Can you see that on your map? Look for the big word, Moab, and then you can see a large lake. That's the Dead Sea. Jericho is just north of the Dead Sea on the west side of the Jordan River. The Israelites will come from the east side, cross the Jordan River to Jericho on the west side. Yeah? (laughs) So I know it's so small. Sorry. I just want you to see where they are. So if you know current country situation, they are in West Jordan. That is where they would be today. Okay, we'll press on. Balak sees them coming, knows what they have done, and so calls Balaam to come and curse them. What I want to know before we get into this next section is that the way that Israel tells the story is important. Now, we might think, why would they concern themselves with random seers and oracles who are not related to Yahweh. Remember, they have discovered through Moses that the God of Abraham's name is Yahweh. And so Yahweh is the one that has given them the commandments at Sinai, has protected them in the wilderness, kind of. I mean, obviously many of them have died, but is the one bringing them to the promised land. Okay, so Yahweh is their guy. Now, what is happening in this story is the Israelites are explaining narratively not that Yahweh is the only God, but that Yahweh is the strongest God. And this is important for us to keep in mind. We often talk of Judaism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam as being monotheistic traditions. And that essentially means one God. But what we forget is that through most of its history, People thought there were still other gods. They only had faith in one. And that one, Yahweh, was a God that could defeat all other gods. And so think of this very much like we know Roman, Greek, Norse mythology, Egyptian mythology. There are a hierarchy of gods. There are some that are just the strongest. In a sense, this is not a a one-to-one, but you can almost think of Yahweh as the Zeus of the world, because if Yahweh wants a thing done, it's going to get done because he's just stronger than all the others. Our modern sensibilities would tell us, no, there aren't other gods out in the world. There is just God. That's what we believe. There is just God. Except, and that sounds nice for all of us, except whenever I do an interfaith panel with any other leaders of any other religious groups, what is the number one question I get asked? Do you all pray to the same God? That is always, always. If it's not the first question, it's the question that comes up next. Always, every single time. And it always stuns me that people would still ask that kind of question because what that question implies is there are lots of gods. I pray to one and he prays to a different one and he prays to a different one. No, that's not how that works. There's just God. 
Now, we pray to God in a particular way. We relate to God in a particular way. When anyone else prays at all, God, it's just God. And so, yes, of course we pray to the same God. Do we pray the same way? No. But is there more than one God? No. So just by default, it's just logic, same God. So that is essentially what we know now, but back then, it would have been perceived of the Israelites' God, Yahweh, is going to fight the Moabite God, who is, you know, then you've got Balaam's God and all the other things. What Balak is doing here in this moment is trying to bring Balaam on his side to make sure that their gods defeat the Israelites' gods. All right. Good? Yes. So your question is how to, I guess, rectify Jesus saying he's the only way to God when I'm saying everyone's praying to the same God? Versus, you know. Yeah. So it's, it's a matter of direction. <laughs> so God is telling us this is the way to relate fully to me. That doesn't mean everyone's going to do it that way. And so whether someone makes a different choice to do something else does not change God's truth that the fullest way to relate to God is through Christ. So whether someone chooses that or not does not change that God can hear their prayers. That's what I believe. God is good all the time. And so if there's a random person praying and trying to seek after God in any way they are trying to do, I don't think God is rejecting them, but I do think, let me put it another way. I think God, first off, I think God's always bigger than we think. I think when we try to limit God, we are the problem. And so if we start from that place where we can never fully understand God and God is always bigger than we think, then when we look around the world and we see that there are people who have done good things in the best way they know how to try and relate to God, I actually think God is trying to relate back. And so I would look at any religion around the world that has any good in it, which is pretty much all the major religions. I mean, you have exceptions to every rule and there are small groups doing horrible things all over the place. But when you look at any of the major global religions, they're really not that dissimilar. They're called to care for the earth, care for other people, um, to be about peace, to on and on and on. I think that God's trying to, God is trying to break through to everyone everywhere all the time. And for us, God's breakthrough in Christ is the most complete way that we have to return God's love for us. It doesn't mean that everyone else is 100% wrong, but I do think that there is a missing component. So when people pray in ways that are not based in Christ, I think, I think, and I, I just, I see the generosity of Jesus in the gospels that they're getting something done. 
It's just not perhaps the complete way because they're not choosing to follow and use Christ as their example. So that's a nuanced opinion. And I think a lot of people like to be 100% right and everyone else to be 100% wrong. And I think the complexity is much more of a sliding scale because I know lots of Christians who are doing it very wrong. They might say Jesus, but they don't look anything like him. And just because they use some words does not mean that their actions are completely faultless. There you go. Yeah. Are you kind of going to ask something, but you're not sure? Yes. We, we cannot unpack all of Christology right now because that's too complex. What I will say is, Jesus says that in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John was written last, and the Gospel of John was written so far away from Jesus' life that a lot of the theology around Jesus had already been developed into a particular way, which is why, and I've said this in here before, if you were to ask Christians to pick their favorite passage from the Gospels, nine out of ten Christians are going to pick something from John because John is most Christian. Mark, Matthew, and Luke are a lot more Jesus-centric than Christ-centric. And there's a little bit of a difference there because in Mark, Matthew, and Luke, Jesus is a lot more a really great teacher, prophet, rabbi, that sort of stuff. Of course, in each of the three... Jesus rises from the dead. In Mark, there is no appearance. Um, But even in Matthew and Luke, there's an appearance. So they embrace the resurrection of Jesus. But the idea that Jesus is son of God, that's really found in John. Because at that point, those first generation of Christians had spent enough time asking enough questions and wrestling with enough of the complex ideas that they'd begun to create the shape of Christianity that we now recognize. And so that's really produced clearest in John versus the other Gospels. So when the writer of John uses that phrase, that is a thoughtfully developed and refined opinion of Jesus that the other three Gospel writers just did not have. It doesn't mean that Jesus didn't say it, but I think it's important for us to note that Jesus didn't say it until the very latest gospel was written. So we can take those sayings as true, but not in a way that excludes people. And I think that's the problem with many Christian groups is that it becomes exclusivist. And if there was one thing Jesus was very clearly not, it was exclusivist. I mean, that's kind of the whole point. Why did they kill him? Because he included everybody. I mean, that's actually the whole thing. And so to say that Jesus would somehow appreciate 
Christian groups excluding people now is just, it's 180 degrees backwards. It's a total misunderstanding of what he did. And so, which is a problem for a lot of us. I mean, I won't ignore that I think many people here or online would say, it kind of feels a little mm, like it's not quite Christian enough. But that's because we've been really well formed in a theological structure that is much more Pauline than it is Jesus. And we can talk about that in a couple of years when we do John. Um, I'm just going to leave it as most Christian theology is actually based on Paul, not Jesus. And we should be very careful to ever say anything about being Christian that doesn't actually come from Jesus. Paul's a good guy. He did his best, but he's also human. So we need to take Paul as a good leader teacher and not make Paul the person who trumps Jesus. That's not a good look. Okay. Let's keep. Any others? <laughs> While I undo everyone's faith. Okay, here we go. Um, let's look at verse 7 because now we get to the good stuff. God bless. It's already halfway through. I'm not even like, I'm not even halfway through the first section. Okay, here we go. Chapter 22, verse 7. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand. Get that? They're bringing lots of money to Balaam. Okay. And they came to Balaam and they gave him Balak's message. He said to them, stay here tonight and I will bring back word to you just as the Lord speaks to me. So the officials of Moab stayed with Balaam. God came to Balaam and said, now this is Yahweh God, and said, who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, King Balak, son of Zippor of Moab, has sent me this message. A people has come out of Egypt and has spread over the face of the earth. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the officials of Balak, go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the officials of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Once again, Balak sent officials more numerous and more distinguished than these, which means more money. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, son of Zippor, Do not let anything hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you a great honor. And whatever you say to me, I will do. Come, curse these people for me. But Balaam replied to the servants of Balak, Although Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. You remain here as the others did, so that I may learn what more the Lord may say to me. That night... God came to Balaam and said to him, If the men have come to summon you, get up and go with them, but do only what I tell you to do. So Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the officials of Moab. We'll pause there for a minute. Balak has done his best to buy Balaam's fidelity, to come and curse the Israelites. Balaam is, in the way the story is told right now, a decently faithful guy. So what is important here, and I'm going to talk about this in a, in a later section in a few minutes. Balaam does not perceive his ability as an oracle or a seer or someone who can curse or bless people as a power he holds. He really sees this as being a vessel of God. And so when Balak comes and says, hey, come curse these people, what Balaam says is, hold on, let me call God. And so Balaam walks over and says, God, hey, 
can I go curse these people? And God says, no, don't do it. And so he goes back to Balak and says, I can't do it. If God tells me I can't do it, I can't do it. Because it's not about him. It's about God working through him. And that's very interesting because Balaam is not an Israelite. So we have up to this point understood the story to be that God has chosen the Israelites. And this goes all the way back to Abraham. And then you can even go back farther. You can go to Noah. You can go to Adam and Eve. God has chosen this particular group of people. And yet here is Balaam, not part of that people. And God's talking to Balaam. And did you notice Balaam says, the Lord my God. He uses the actual phrase that the Israelites use. Now remember, he's not using that phrase. But that's the way the story is being told. And so the story is being told in a very powerful way. Yahweh is not just for them. Yahweh is all over the place, talking to lots of people, nudging and communicating and trying to influence in very powerful ways. And here is this non-Israelite oracle hearing Yahweh's voice. That's very powerful. Let's get on to the second section about Balaam's donkey, because that's the fun stuff. Okay, here we are, verse 22. <laughs> I find this very funny. This is, again, one of those moments where I wish that they had better editors um, when they were writing this, because literally in verse 20, God says to Balaam, if they've summoned you, get up and go with them, but only do as I tell you. You're thinking like, okay, so just go with them, but just don't do anything that I wouldn't do. Verse 22 says, God's anger was kindled because he was going. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, you just told me to go. I mean, come on. But anyway, that's the way it goes. So verse 22, God's anger was kindled because he was going. That's Balaam. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the road as his adversary. Now Balaam was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. The donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. So the donkey turned off the road and went into the field, and Balaam struck the donkey to turn it back onto the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards, with a wall on either side. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it scraped against the wall and scraped Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck it again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it lay down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and it said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have not, not, Balaam, oh my goodness, how's the donkey talking to me? No, it's just... <laughs> Balaam said to the donkey... Because you have made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. But the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey, which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I been in the habit of treating you this way? And Balaam said, no. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down, falling on his face. The angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? I have come out as an adversary because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If it had not turned away from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let it live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, 
I have sinned. For I did not know that you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now, therefore, if it is displeasing to you, I will return home. The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only what I tell you to speak. So Balaam went on with the officials of Balak. Okay, we'll stop there. Talking donkey is a good Bible story. I'm just going to tell you. So this is one of those great moments where you could read this to your four-year-old and they're like, yes, like the donkey wins. And so this story really is putting these three donkeys right in a row. Like you've got donkey number one is Balak. He doesn't accept that Yahweh is doing something through the Israelites. The Israelites have obviously been given some kind of strength to be proceeding through the wilderness as they do, and Balak is just going to resist them, even though he has seen that resisting the Israelites does not pay off. Second donkey is Balaam, and he's trying to let Yahweh guide him, but is really kind of being stubborn, and he continues to be tempted by the offer that Balak is giving him to come and curse the people, and this is so useful to us. Because Balaam is us. I mean, in this story, Balaam is a person kind of trying to do the right thing. So Balaam obviously knows Yahweh is real. Balaam understands that Yahweh is doing something with the Israelites. And so he doesn't want to just defy Yahweh. He seems very clear that that's not going to work out. So he goes and he says, hey, should I go with them and curse these people? And God says, no. And then the people come back and they offer him more money. And he's like, are you sure, God? Because it does kind of seem like maybe it would be good for me. And God, in a sense, says, hey, it's your life. But then God gets mad when he does the thing God told him to. Anybody with a child gets this. Because how many times does a child ask for a thing and then you say no? Even better, scratch that. How many times have you told a child not to do a thing? And then they go and they do it anyway. And what you really want to say when they are crying to you because they've hurt themselves is, I told you. I might do that most of the time. Um, I am not known to give a hug when a child has done the thing I told them not to do because they're dumb. And so in a sense, that is what is happening here. God's like, hey, listen, I told you no. And now if you're going to come and ask me again, hey, you do whatever you want. I already told you not to do it. And so that's essentially what's happening here. So Balaam is the kind of donkey we are all this way. How many times do we know we know the right thing to do? We do. But we kind of really want to do the other thing. And so we play the game of, God, are you sure I can't do that? You know, or, hmm, that sounds really good. And maybe I should do that. Maybe I, I'm going to make a pros and cons list, right? You know what you are supposed to do. And yet we still, like, we make the lists and we try to rationalize it out. We make it logical and reasonable and all the other things. We knew from moment one exactly what we should have done. And yet we can talk ourselves into anything if it's really what we want to do. That's what Balaam's doing. That's just human. We knew. We knew. And yet we still did the wrong thing, even though we tried to rationalize it. We knew. And that's... For me, the brilliance of this story is then comes along the third donkey, the actual donkey, and it's the donkey that says to Balaam, I am trying to save your life. You knew not to do this. You knew not to come with these men, and yet you chose to anyway, and I have tried to come alongside you and keep you from dying. Remember the angel? 
We, I say it all the time in here. Angels are not fat babies with wings. Angels are warriors, right? And we at St. Michael, we kind of get this because Michael was that warrior angel. When angels appear to people in scripture, what do they always say? Do not be afraid. Why would they say that if they didn't look freaking scary? So <laughs> angels are really scary looking. And here they are. He's got this angel wielding a sword, basically saying, hey, if that donkey had brought you a little bit closer, I would have killed you and let that donkey go. That's actually what the angel says. And so we've got this story that I think is funny, but it's also something that is so true for us that Balaam is us if we can just be honest and, and accept that we often want what we want whether God wants it for us or not. And that's really the kind of discernment that we as disciples are invited to enter into. That kind of discernment of listening to God's voice is not easy. That's why we need each other. You've definitely heard me say, you should not be Christian on your own. It's not a good idea. Because then this happens. Then we become Balaam. But when we're in a group of people holding each other accountable and really trying to love each other properly, then we can actually raise each other up and help each other understand and discern. We can beat the donkey for each other. I hadn't really thought about that, but I like that. I want you all to be each other's donkey. That is, that is the message of today, right? We are on our own Balaam and we need our friends to be our donkeys and to keep us from doing the things we're not supposed to do. Hmm. I like that. I'm going to put that on a coffee mug. Okay. I think we should sell I'll Be Your Donkey coffee mugs in the bookshop. <laughs> so that's good. All right. Any questions about this before we get to Balaam's oracles? Okay. Here we go. Section three. Balaam offers four oracles. So remember, Balaam's a seer. Balaam, Balaam is an oracle. And so he ultimately gets to Balak and he tells Balak what he does not want to hear. Now, recall what I said earlier. Israel's not involved in this. All three of these chapters happen completely separate from, from Israel. Balaam now meets Balak and he's up in the mountains and they're looking down at Israel. And Balak says, what do you need in order to curse them? And Balaam kind of says, okay, how about this or that? And then Balaam offers an oracle. Balak doesn't like it. So Balak moves to a different location and says, how about we set up an altar here? And then Balaam offers another oracle and Balak doesn't like it. And so then he says, how about we move again? Balak is literally moving around in the mountains, looking down at Israel in the valley. They are there camped in Moab. Balak has called Balaam over. And they are watching the Israelites down in the valley. Balak's trying to get Balaam to curse them, but he just won't. So that puts the oracles into context. So let's read the first oracle. This is chapter 22, verse 41. On the next day, Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Bemeth Baal, and from there, he could see part of the people of Israel. Then Balaam said to Balak, build me seven altars here and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me. Balak did as Balaam had said, and Balak and Balaam offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, stay here beside your burnt offerings while I go aside. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me. 
Whatever he shows me, I will tell you. And he went to a bare height. Then God met Balaam, and Balaam said to him, I have arranged the seven altars and have offered a bull and a ram on each altar. The Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and this is what you must say. So he returned to Balak, who was standing beside his burnt offerings with all the officials of Moab. Then Balaam uttered his oracle, saying, Balak has brought me from Aram, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him. From the hills I behold him. Here is a people living alone and not reckoning itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or the number of the dust cloud of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. Then Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I brought you here to curse my enemies, but now you have done nothing but bless them. Balaam answered, Must I not take care to say what the Lord puts into my mouth? And so we will stop there. So, in the ancient world, cursing was real business. We might hear the idea of cursing and blessing and think, that's sweet. Like, you know, blessing, that's nice. A cursing, good try. But this was real stuff back in the day. People did not take curses lightly. And if a person was cursed, then they had to go through a large process to kind of cleanse themselves of the curse, to defend themselves of the curse, all that good stuff. Today, we still kind of see those things in back alleys. I mean, you think of things like voodoo. It's not perhaps mainstream, but it's around this idea that you could still be cursed. For Christians, this should really not be a thing because we know that that's just not the way God works. But at the time, this would have been perceived as a very real threat to Israel. That if Balaam somehow cursed Israel, it might actually stick. And so the way they tell the story is very important. Balaam goes, does all the right stuff. He's done all the setup. The rams and the bulls and the whatever, and he sacrificed them all. He should be able to accomplish a real good curse. And yet God says to Balaam, do not. I have blessed these people and your curse will not work. And not only does Balaam not curse the people and fail, Balaam doesn't even try to curse the people because God has already blessed them. This is, again, for the people who are writing this story, very, very significant. Because it could be easy to perceive that Yahweh was on the side of the Israelites, but that that defense does not necessarily extend beyond them. And in this story, what is happening is Balaam, non-Israelite, is actually the one who is being told by Yahweh that the people are blessed, leave them alone. And Balaam listens. That's a big moment and would have mattered a lot to the Israelites who had been in exile in Babylon because they're trying to figure out if Yahweh is really as strong as they thought. And by telling the story this way, they are really owning their responsibility in failing to keep Israel as a kingdom. It's not God who failed. It is they who failed. And now they are trying to be faithful again, just like Balaam 
not even an Israelite is being faithful. Does that all make sense? Okay. I am going to skip the next part so we can actually get through this. Mm-mm-mm. Turn to chapter 24. I'm going to jump to the third and fourth oracles. So at this point, Balak, like I said, he moved, did the whole big thing again. Second oracle doesn't work. Balaam again is, Balak is thwarted because Yahweh's talking to Balaam and Balaam won't do it. So now we are getting to where they're moving a third time and Balaam is going to hear from God once more. So look at chapter 24, verse 1. Now Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel. So he did not go, as at other times, to look for omens, but set his face toward the wilderness. Balaam looked up and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. Then the Spirit of God came upon him, and he uttered his oracle, saying, The oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is clear, the oracle of the one who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down but with eyes uncovered, how fair are your tents, O Jacob? Your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch far away, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from its buckets, and his seed shall have abundant water. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God who brings him out of Egypt is like the horns of a wild ox for him. He shall devour the nations that are his foes and break their bones. He shall strike with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion, and like a lioness, who will rouse him up? Blessed is everyone who blesses you, and cursed is everyone who curses you. Now Balak gets really mad, and Balaam offers one more oracle. Jump to verse 17. Balaam says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the borderlands of Moab and the territory of all the Shittites. Edom will become a possession, Seir, a possession of its enemies, while Israel does valiantly. One out of Jacob shall rule and destroy the survivors of Ur. We'll stop there. These last two oracles set up the triumph of Israel in the promised land. Balaam has offered these in succession. The first is essentially saying, no, no, not going to curse them. By the time he gets all the way to the fourth oracle, not only is he saying, no, I will not curse them, he's really saying, I'm going to bless them. And they will then be a blessing to everyone who receives them well. They are setting up a big ark here to land at a place where ultimately Israel is going to be the blessing to the world. Now, what has happened a few times is that this oracle has been used to prefigure the Messiah. It is reasonable that there are moments, sort of dots that you can connect throughout the Old Testament, including into the prophets, that then point to the Messiah. And there are people who did connect those dots to essentially identify Jesus as being the fulfillment of this prophecy. We actually have here essentially a prophetic voice. 
you can say an oracle is a prophecy. And Balaam has here, through God's own mouth, spoken that there will be someone who rises out of Israel to be the one who blesses the entire world. And those who receive him will be blessed as well. It's not a far stretch to kind of draw a line from here through the prophets to Jesus. I think that's a little much. I do not think that here Balaam or the prophets are somehow intentionally predicting Jesus as the Messiah. I do think they are speaking the words that they have received faithfully about Israel being the place from which God will bring salvation to the whole world. But that then gets back to this idea of chosenness. I think we've discussed this in here before, but I think it's worth repeating that the Israelites are God's chosen people. But chosenness is clearly a responsibility. It does not mean they are better than everyone else. It is their chosenness that makes them responsible to bring everybody to God. And that's really the mistake that they make coming out of exile, is the sense that God has identified them as being better than other people. And instead, what they get with Jesus is the clarity that, yes, you are chosen, but you are chosen to go out and bring everyone else to God completely and fully. That's the responsibility of being chosen. It's not being set apart as better because you are chosen. And we start to see that kind of implication pretty clearly here that becomes the messianic identity that then Jesus' followers begin to use to understand who he was. And that's where we get the Gospels and the Epistles and the development of the people who follow Jesus. And that's what I got for you today. I appreciate it. Remember, ask questions. You can email me. You can post them here if you're watching this video later. And next week, we complete the whole study of this year. I'll see you then. Bye.